It was probably less about feeling nurturing and more about realizing I couldn't deliver the same level of caring that McKinsey had seen and do this baby thing at the same time. Because I've always said if my job was to sharpen pencils every day, I would go to bed worrying about the two pencils I didn't sharpen well enough. Rocking a put-together look was important culturally and individually to Karen M. Smith-DeBolt. If she looked the part, she could eventually feel the part. So she lived the fabulous life, working hard, traveling hard, and had no plans to change that. At some point, though, she was forced to make a change, at least temporarily. Find out how uncovering new aspects of you can lead to both growth and fulfillment on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with my friend and yours, Karen M. Smith-DeBolt, and we are going to talk about getting acquainted with new versions of ourselves. So Karen, it is so delightful to see you again. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. So Karen, I'm going to just launch in and we ask the same two questions every time. So when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you were going to become? Oh my gosh. When I was in college, I think I had imposter syndrome for four years, which I still have imposter syndrome. I think that's just a theme throughout my whole life. But I, at yeah, Dartmouth, who was I? I was just, I think I was a little lost. I think, I don't know if looking back, maybe it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. I mean, I made it work. I loved it. I found my tribe of friends, you know, but I think I was definitely kind of bumbling along trying to figure out who I was. I, you know, my motto in college was dress well, test well. And so I spent a lot of time getting ready for finals. I remember my roommates would be like, we got to go. And I'd be ironing my outfit for the, you know, the psychology exam or whatever. But um, that's still one of my mottos in life. Dress well, test well. You've got to feel good when you get out there, conquer the world. I think I was really lost while I was at school. I, you know, I think I thought I wasn't, but looking back, I realized how young and naive and just clueless I was. And then when we graduated, I, I, I don't know if anybody else had this experience. I wanted somebody to hand me a list of directions yeah. for what was next. I remember saying that to people like, I just wish somebody would give me a set of directions. Like what steps do I need to do now? What do I have to do next? And it made sense years later when I became a consultant in the whole organizational design space. And we were all about Myers-Briggs. Yeah. I am an ESTJ. So I love a plan and I like my lists and I like, I just like to know what's going to happen. So now I can kind of see why that was such a, why I wanted a list of directions when I graduated who I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to move to New York City and I was going to get a job working for Chanel in their corporate office. You know, that was yeah. my, like, that's what I want to do. I grew up in Tacoma, Washington on the West Coast. Like, I was, like, clearly on the other side of the country. Like, anyways, I, so I, so I did that. I moved to New York. Almost. I almost did that. I, and then I remember I called, <laughs> I called the main line of Chanel and introduced myself. And the lady on the other end just said, I was kind of like, I'm here. When do I show up? You know, <laughs> so naive. And the lady on the other end goes, we're a really small company of only 200 people. Thank you for your interest. And just like hangs up on me. And I'm like, well, that wasn't the plan. That's so funny. So, you know, and you have like 15 minutes to kind of 
have a breakdown and realize that that's not going to happen. But then I uh, ended up, you know, pounding the pavement and I got a job at McKinsey and Company, not as a consultant. I was doing international recruiting for them, which sounded super awesome, right? You're, I was like, international recruiting? I, you know, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Pretty sure they don't even have that division anymore because before you could attach an email, a resume to an email. So, you know, our, our role was basically hosting all these international offices that McKinsey had and, you know, trying to get candidates. It was a really great job, but it wasn't as glamorous as it sounded. So anyway, that's who I thought I would be. And I ended up not in a bad place by any stretch. I had a great, got a great gig at McKinsey and, and that was kind of. Right. Okay. But so much to dig into right now, because I will say we didn't know each other well in college. I always admired your lipstick. I was like, gosh, how does, I don't even own lipstick. How would (laughs) I know what color to, I mean, you had it all together. And so kind of that dress well, test well, you had this persona of, whoo, she's together, she's got it. And yet you're from Tacoma, Washington. It was the height of grunge. How did you not come like fully baked out in your flannel? Like how how did that happen? Well, so I, well, we'll put it this way. My mother is Colombian and I don't know if you have seen many Colombian women, but they are no flannel, no flannel. You're dressed to the (laughs) nines. I mean, my mom's motto in life, I, we're all about mottos in my family. So her motto was, if your nails are done and you have a good handbag, you can get anywhere in life, right? And, and you know, she always gives this example of being stuck on the side of the road because her car broke down and, you know, a police officer came and saw her nails in her handbag. So she, you know, he took her, he like rescued her. So that's why I was not grungy. I wasn't really allowed to be. It wasn't really part of my family's culture, I guess. So you always have to be pulled together. And and to this day, I mean, my mom is still impeccable. And she's just like, it doesn't matter if you see her walking down the street in the neighborhood or at a party, she's always going to look fabulous. So that's why I wasn't allowed to be grungy. Yes, and fabulous you looked. But you also mentioned having found your tribe. And I will say they were neither all handbags and nails, nor grunge, nor anything particular. You know, I think I would love to know how you found the tribe and what you were searching for and what you found to get you through. I guess I'll name my tribe. And it wasn't really until sophomore year. I didn't go, didn't do a foreign study program, which is one of my big regrets. But I did do the UC San Diego exchange. To get out of the sophomore cold. Year. Yeah, because to get out of the cold. And that's where I met Ann Contos and Amy Duggan. Because they had done it too? Well, they did it with me. Oh. So that's, well, I didn't really know them before this experience, but that's where we really got to know each other. And then they, when we came back, I got the Kate Andrews connection, Janine DiBenedetto, Lauren Hennessy. So that was really my group. And I mean, I, I think Janine is probably the one who's, you know, more lipsticky of us all, right? Like me. But, you know, Kate and Amy were complete athletes. I mean, we're talking, and Kate was captain of the soccer team. And we talk about, we still get together. We call it the WAD. It's the Women After Dartmouth group. And the six of us get together every year. And we always talk about what is it that drew the six of us together? And, you know, I think a lot of it was, I think we were all insecure overachievers who we were all really good about giving each other the reassurances we needed. We could be real around each other. 
do you guys remember you'd go to an exam and I remember people would be like, oh, I didn't study at all. And I'm like, well, that's funny because I studied like for the last 72 hours and I'm like, and my clothes are really ironed, but I studied for the last 72 hours and I still feel like I'm not going to do well on this. I, I feel like there was so much of that kind of posturing at school and, and looking back, obviously everybody was worried about how they were going to do. And, you know, I think it was just trying to be confident for some reason, this group, we would, we could just literally be honest with each other. Like, I'm really terrified about going in and taking this test or I have to, there was just a real natural kind of feeling of between us all. We could just be real with each other. And I think that was kind of the turning point for me at school. And that's when I felt like, okay, I can, I can make this work and really love Dartmouth. Because before that, I was still kind of bumbling around like, oh, is this really the right place for me? Right, right. And so when you got out after making that awesome telephone call to Cheryl, I love that story. You found your way and you were at McKinsey for quite a while. So I was at McKinsey for quite a while. I took a hiatus. I did leave for about five years and I did consulting, change management consulting for another consulting firm. And that was great. It was a good experience. I did change management. I did organizational design. You know, I had status on all the airlines. You know, I was on a plane every Monday. And then, well, so I met my husband in 1999. And he was a Chicago boy and I was living in New York. But we met at a wedding on the West Coast. So we were dating long distance. And so when we got married, I finally agreed to leave New York. (laughs) I wasn't even, you know, I remember the day after we got engaged, he's like, okay, so when are you moving to Chicago? I'm like, well, the day after we get married, of course, you know? (laughs) So finally, we were finally together in the same city after we got married. And then being on the road five days a week just didn't, it just was silly. It was like, well, this is like, I remember like the 10th day of our honeymoon, I looked at him and I'm like, this is the longest amount of time we've ever spent together because we always just saw each other on weekends. So So we discussed it and I decided to leave consulting. And that's when I returned to McKinsey. And then, you know, I did a little bit of recruiting and then I ended up really mainly doing professional development for them, which was basically, I I looked at it as being an executive coach. So I would place other consultants on their studies, really try to develop them into McKinsey partners. Mm -hmm. It was actually a really good way to prepare for motherhood because talk about insecure overachievers, that's such a McKinsey term because that's exactly what Everybody I was about to say that. I was going to say you're definitely like helping people through their own imposter syndrome in that world. Totally. totally. And we joked about that at McKinsey about, you know, the insecure overachiever and everybody's going to, someone's going to tap your shoulder and say, oh, we made a mistake, you know? <laughs> so then I was at McKinsey for a long time. Then I think I was there for like another eight years. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2010, I left unexpectedly. Yeah. Unexpectedly. <laughs> so when I asked, who did you think you would become? You had a vision of corporate Karen, kind of yeah. the handbag, nails, off on the planes, all of that, which you lived into. How did motherhood feel to you as a 20-something or even an early 30-something? Like, what was the idea of motherhood like for you at that point? Oh, so well before I became one, you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it was like everything I didn't ever want to be. I was going to be the the working girl who had like the super handsome husband. He is very handsome. And we were going to travel the world. And, you know, we were going to be the couple that worked and traveled. And I was totally content with that. I didn't feel like I was missing a thing. I would see people who had children and I would, I had pity for them. 
I literally had pity for that guys. I thought, oh gosh, what a what a headache and what a you know that just looks like a lot. It looks real. I remember I'd be like, people would ask me if we would want kids, and I'd say, it just seems so disruptive. I don't, I don't think. <laughs> I say that about pets. I, I love that you say that about children. But that's literally what my my staff yeah, yeah. is just really disruptive. So yeah, so motherhood when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, was just not on the horizon at all. But there's this strange thing about biology. It happens. So it happened to you. It did. And what was that like? You know, it's funny because I I kept telling myself, billions of people have gone through this before. It's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Right? It was such, they always say, you know, motherhood's so natural. It's so beautiful. No, it's not. It's like (laughs) totally alien. It's completely disgusting. I it's loud, it's messy, it's not It's not in a clean, nice little box. And so I just, I was terrified. I was totally terrified when I found out I was going to have a baby. And that's, I just kept saying, I'm going to have this baby. Like, And I, I kept thinking in my head, okay, it's going to be like a procedure. I'll go to the hospital, this baby will arrive magically, and then I can just go back to my regular life. Right. That's what my vision of motherhood was, because everybody else's, what I was seeing wasn't going to fit with my world. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this is fine. It's just a little a little blip, and then I'll just, you know, I'll have the baby, and then feed the baby, and then I'll go, go back to, you know, traveling and working and being fabulous again. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did that happen? No, not at all. I, so I, I, yeah, I ended up, so leading up to, so where I worked at McKinsey, they have, it's just an amazing place because like at the time I fought it, but they make you leave like two or three weeks before your due date. Do you like how I said that? They make you make you, They Mm -hmm. they make you leave. And then you have like, you know, like a three to six, it was just this really generous maternity leave which was amazing, but I didn't want to leave. I called HR like the week before I was going to get kicked out. Right. I said, do I have to take maternity leave? Can I just, can I just stay and then come back? You know what? The, the woman on the other end of the line was just, she was literally speechless. She could not believe somebody was asking this question. She kind of laughed and said, listen, just go. I I think you're going to have a hard time balancing everything. I I again, I literally didn't understand so then I have this baby, you know, I, I remember leaving the hospital and I'm sure everybody feels like that. They like, they're like, you wait, you're going to send me home now. Like, I, how are we supposed to go home? I can't. Where are my classes? Where I don't want to go home. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't want I don't want to go home. I go home and I'm thinking, what, what do I do with this baby? Like, I, you know, I was so unprepared for this that I remember, you know, how you have to take these classes when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is how, so my takeaway from those classes was not, oh, this is how you do CPR. This is how you sleep train. But one question I did ask, which I think I basically announced myself as the stupidest person in the class was, it was a sleep class. And I was like, this is great and all. Yeah, I understand the baby has to sleep, but what do you do with it when it's awake? I literally asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, I don't understand. So I'm sure all those people thought I was in remedial everything when I, in high school, when I asked that question, but I wanted those directions again. I wanted my directions. So anyway, I take my maternity leave 
and I even have to back up, like finding out when I was pregnant, do you remember the Papa Don't Preach video with Madonna? <laughs> and she's in her little black leather jacket and her jeans and her pointy flats. And she has to tell her dad she's keeping her baby. And she's scared. Right. She's terrified. That's how I felt when I had to go tell my boss I was pregnant. Like, I thought I was going to disappoint him to no end. And God, the guy was just amazing. He gives me this this bump like this is going to be the best like adventure of your life. And I'm thinking, I don't know about that, but he was right. So yeah, I motherhood, it was not, you know, he thought for sure I'd come back. And then a week before I was supposed to return, I ended up quitting, which was like a mic drop. Nobody could believe it. I couldn't believe it. My colleagues couldn't believe it. Our listeners probably couldn't believe it. So (laughs) where does that come from? What happened in those weeks? I think what happened was I had a realization. It was probably less about feeling nurturing and more about realizing I couldn't deliver the same level of Karen that McKinsey had seen and do this baby thing at the same time. Because I've always said if my job was to sharpen pencils every day, I would go to bed worrying about the two pencils I didn't sharpen well enough. And I was working around the clock, taking calls, you know, my job was literally dealing with the consultants and the partners. And so I would get calls at all hours of the night. I'd go on vacation and everybody would call and they wanted five minutes. So I was just, I realized there was no way I could, I could deliver the same level of performance that I had. And I'm sure work would have been understanding and it would have been an adjustment, but I was so overwhelmed at the time. And my husband was so, you know, he, I think he, was relieved when I did end up quitting. He was always so supportive of my career and how much I was working. But I think to him, he saw it as, okay, she's going to take a breath and like try something new. And I have to say, like, it's not easy being around a little baby. Some people love it, but I didn't even babysit growing up. Like I was not, I, you know, I would play with Barbies when I was a little girl, but I wouldn't play with, I would get the Barbie ready for the party and then like start over again. Like there was no, I didn't play with baby dolls. It was hard those first couple of months for sure. Definitely. But you know, you, you kind of slog through them. Everybody does. I kept telling myself billions of women have been through this before. So, you know, you're not the first one. (laughs) Right. Right. But then billions of women also decide at some point later, okay, there are other people that can take care of the daily kid thing and I'm going to balance and juggle. And you still decided, nope, I don't want to have to bifurcate. Tell me more. I was fortunate enough to be in the position to be able to make that choice. Right. I mean, I think that's, if that hadn't been an option, then, you know, of course I would have have gone back. I think, you know, I also realized I'm too much of a control freak. You know, I, I wanted to make sure I kind of saw what was going on and, you know, could be the the person to to take care of this little baby. And I almost, so my son was born in 2010, but I look back to that decade between 2000 and 2010, which is, I think when most of us, just again, given when we graduated, really started to burn the midnight oil, right? right? I cannot, it is a blur. That whole decade's a blur. Never mind the fact that there weren't printed pictures at that point and we didn't have iPhones then. So it's like, (laughs) 
all our pictures from that decade are stuck on a camera somewhere in the basement on some like SD drive, right? Like right, right. that whole decade's gone in more ways than just my memory. I almost, it was like I woke up. It was almost like I was born again, which sounds so dramatic. But I really, it was, it was good to be able to kind of see the world through a new lens. And it was also interesting because for so much of my life, it was the first thing you say when you meet somebody is, you know, hi, this is my name. And oh, and this is what I do. What, right? I do. what do you do? What do you do? God, yeah. For the first time, I was like, gosh, how am I going to answer that question? And that kind of stressed me out for a bit. And, you know, and I still laugh about it. I mean, listen, when you reached when when you reached out to me to do this, I was like, it's like the Real Housewives of Dartmouth. Ooh, <laughs> is Andy Cohen going to join us? Because this is like, I don't know how to answer that question still. The fact that we're still asking it, I think, is part of the problem. Right. Of, you know, I think you you have a persona that's big enough to just stop at, hi, I'm Karen M. And... I get to know me more than what I do in the hours that you would never see me. Who cares? Right. Well, and I think it's shifted the way I meet people. And now I love, I love getting to know people in a much more kind of, and such an overused term, but organic way. Like I have friends that I've had for years. And when I learn something new about them, I'm like, that's amazing. Like, how is this not the first thing you told me, you know? And but now I really try not to ask people what they what they do now or what they did before mm-hmm. or where they went to school. I mean, I'll, it's just like I feel like I've been able to really kind of get to know people on a new level. And it's not all about your laurels or your accomplishments. And it's just about who people really are and connecting with people. So that's been really nice. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Yeah. Um, and you have the one. I have the one. I was a one and done. I have to say having one child is very civilized. It's like we can go out to dinner. We can travel. And we still have a couple that travels. Like we drag that kid all over the place. That's he's great. been all over the world. And he's a gem. I got the, I was so lucky. My son Grayson is like so easygoing and he has great hair. I mean, he's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm so lucky. But we just have the one and he's 11 and he's in sixth grade. It, it is funny though, because like, and when he went to first grade, all of a sudden I did have a lot more time, right? Mm-hmm. So that was 2016. And I decided, okay, I need to figure out what's going to be next. And for this sounds, again, the life of a housefrau. For me, New Year's is not January 1st. It's literally the first day of school. That's when I can do my, okay, what are my resolutions for the year? And I remember that was the year that, of course, was the big Trump election year, right? Which I just thought, and the whole make America great again. So I was like, I make, make Karen great again. That's exactly what I did. So that was my, I would go out with my char- my charging cry. And I remember telling my friends, I'm going to make Karen great again. <laughs> I even had a hat made, which my husband was like, you cannot leave the house. <laughs> 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 I can't leave the house wearing that. And but then all of my friends were like, you're right. This is so we then it was like, make Tasha great, make Elizabeth great, make Chrissy great again. You know, we had all these make everybody great again. And that year was kind of fun for a bunch of my friends in my my situation of you know, being a <laughs> stay at home mom. But we all really kind of set goals and like it was a really fun year. And I remember it happened to coincide with my 25th or was it 
high school reunion. And um, I just remember I was having so much fun making Karen great again that when a classmate of mine was like, so Karen, what are you doing? I was like, I was actually so excited to like answer the question. And I was, you know, I was working out. I was, you know, joining a, a breast cancer board. I was researching things I hadn't done before, but it was kind of like a, an odd awakening that I hadn't anticipated. And now that's kind of every year I really try to focus on, okay, what am I going to do this year to keep myself engaged and interesting? (laughs) That was a kind of like the turning point was first grade for me because that's when I had a little bit more time and could kind of focus on me again, which has been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that idea of annual reinvention, particularly at this stage in our life where we have achieved the things that answer that question in the work way. And now I love that the answer could be, what are you doing, Karen? I'm making myself great again. Like, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Again, maybe there are more out there like me. I don't know. You know what, Karen? I think there are people out there that wonder what if I had made that bold choice because it is a struggle to, to decide at that moment, who am I going to be kind of in respect to this person mm-hmm. this, that I'm bringing into the world and the person I used to be and the people I don't even know I can become. I, I think it's a bold choice and I'm an unexpected for you, but it seems to have worked. And honestly, Karen, like you're the person in our moments when, you know, grass is always greener. We're like, oh my God, what would it be like to be just myself right now. Yeah. Well, I hate, and I, you know, I feel bad saying this, but it's amazing. It's a, it's so liberating. And I, I wake up every day just so happy that I can be where I am right now. And, you know, I realize how lucky I am. So yeah, I, right. I try not Perfect. to take any, any minute for granted for sure. Well, in addition to the lipstick, I also remember your laughter, and I am so glad that that hasn't changed in all these reinventions and that you are embracing every step of this. And I am certain that the the next chapters, plural, of Karen are going to be amazing. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks for having me. It's been good. I'm having a a wonderful time. And... um... You know, I just have nothing but excitement for kind of what's next. That was Karen M. Smith-Tabolt, who has found many ways to reinvent herself after years in organizational design consulting and executive coaching. She lives in Chicago with her husband and only child son. If you're on the reinvention path yourself, I'd say you've found in the Roads Taken podcast a great temporary destination for inspiration. Each of my guests has not only a tale to tell, but some wisdom to share. Please share the word of the show with your favorite people by pointing them to roadstakenshow.com or telling them they can subscribe and follow wherever they find their podcasts, where they can find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, and more episodes of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.